Hey everybody, it is episode 115 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. I've got a special guest, James Dodds, joining me again on this week's episode. James has been on episodes 837 and most recently on episode 107, where we were talking about staying healthy in 2019. In this episode, we're going to actually break down with James Another training topic that I think is going to be interesting for you, which is we're calling what we're calling workout management, basically how to manage and work through your workouts and get the most out of them. We're also going to be breaking down some workout science, so to speak, and talking about the variables that matter in workouts and how small adjustments to those variables can change the purpose of the entire workout. And so we'll be covering that with James here in just a bit. By way of intro, I wanted to quickly recap the U.S. Indoor Championships that happened last weekend. Of course, you can go back if you have an NBC Sports Gold account and watch all of the action. And I'll link to the results in the show notes. There's some Some interesting storylines. I'm going to focus on the key things that I think were pretty fascinating from this year's U.S. indoors. But first, a small beef I have with USATF. It was decided in 2015 that in the non-indoor championship years, which would be the odd years, so 2019 being one of those, 2017, 2015, that at U.S. indoors, the athletes would race some off-distance distances. So the 600-meter and the 1,000-meter races got introduced into the mix to theoretically mix things up and make things more interesting. But in my opinion, it's sort of silly, and I don't quite understand it because in this case, for these now odd number of years, you have the 600-meter races happening, you got the 1,000-meter race happening, and then the one-mile and two-mile So within the same meet, you've got the metric system competing with the U.S. customary system. And I just don't quite understand what we're trying to accomplish by racing these odd distances and why you wouldn't just standardize around the events that you're going to see raced in any indoor championship. Because in my opinion... It only makes these races more odd and less appealing to the casual fan. When you have plenty of storylines, if we just race the standard distances, if, in my opinion, if you wanted to add something interesting, add a 5,000-meter race, which is not typically race for indoor championships, add that here in this case so that we could get something more interesting happening on the tracks if you're going to try to mix things up. So I don't really understand what the USATF is trying to accomplish. I mean, when you look at it, they're not even really promoting US indoors or giving it any of the appropriate fanfare. So I'm not exactly sure what putting in these weird distances actually accomplishes if you're not going to actually promote it. But nevertheless, we did get one fascinating headline out of the odd distance races at U.S. Indoors, which is that, at least one fascinating headline, which is that 16-year-old Athing Mu ended up with the win in the women's 600-meter race, which 
was actually quite impressive because of the way she did it. She basically ran from the front and held off Raven Rogers, who is an 800 meter stud. And so the fact that she was able to do that and do it in U.S. record fashion actually is is pretty huge. She ran a 123.57 to get the American record, basically leading from the front and holding off the talented Nike 800-meter athlete, Raven Rogers. So that's impressive. 16 years old to do it the way she did, completely fearlessly running from the front. And even when Raven Rogers tried to come around her on the final backstretch, she wouldn't have it. She just fended her off and then kept rolling to be to be a pretty pretty decent field in that 600 meter race so hats off to a thing move she's only 16 but that has to bode well for her future of course you never know what might happen with some of these precocious performers but the fact that you can get an american record in the 600 meter at the age of 16 probably means you've got some skills that will come to manifest later and of course It'll be interesting to see what that means for her when it comes to thinking about Tokyo next year. Is this something where you have a 16-year-old athlete who I guess will be 17, potentially 18, depending on the timing of her birthday, coming into Tokyo? It's not unheard of to have an athlete of that age make the Olympics. Cindy McLaughlin was one of those athletes in London in 2016 who was able to make that happen coming out of high school in the 400 meter hurdles so could a thing do that and what distance will she do it in is she going to do that in the 400 or would it come in the 800 meter race this obviously being the 600 kind of cuts in between the two but she she runs both it looks like she probably has more potential in the 800 meters so I would expect that to be the distance that she chooses for an Olympic bid, but we'll see. But but there you go. A thing boom. Congrats at the age of 16. I'm not sure that I had my stuff together at that point like she does, so that's pretty impressive. So that was one headline worth checking out if you can watch the replay on that race. It's pretty awesome to see the fearlessness of the thing move. Second race I wanted to talk about is the one mile for the women. Colleen Quigley got the upset. My episode 67 guest, who was also on with Kate Grayson, episode 109, beat her teammate Shelby Houlihan, who had been basically unbeatable at all distances, including the 10K distance where she recently won at U.S. Cross. Shelby had not been beaten in quite a while at U.S. Champs, and Colleen Quigley did it and did it in impressive fashion. She made a move at 500 meters to go to take the lead and never really looked back. You could see the 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 grit and the pain on her face as she tried to hold off Houlihan at the very end. And she did it, crossing the line, mouthing, at least for the cameras, the Shalane trademark finish and basically mouthing fuck yeah as she crossed the line beating her teammate Shelby Houlihan in a 4.29 and that's obviously got to build confidence for for Colleen as she prepares for the outdoor season 
because she'll be going back to the steeple, I'm sure, but with plenty of speed. And she certainly has the best flat ground speed. If you look up, if you look at those steeplers that she'll be competing with at USA's Emma and her teammate Courtney Frerichs, Shelby is definitely the fastest over the flat races. And so to be able to translate that into the steeple should be really, really interesting because she's also got that pretty solid steeple form. The fact that she's been healthy as well, I think bodes well. If she can continue to stay healthy through the outdoor season, watch out. I think Colleen is somebody who could potentially win USA's in the steeple this year. So we will see, but congrats to her on holding off her teammate, Corey McGee, my also another one of my recent guests, finished in third in 4.30. That's a really, really impressive race for her, but Corey was on my episode 111 show, so it's cool to have, to have, to have had the, the first and third athletes in this U.S. one-mile race in uh, on my podcast. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Kay Grace did not have a good race. She finished 10th, sort of completely out of the mix in the U.S. one mile. It looked to me like she just got out of position and was too far back when Colleen made her move, which made it really difficult to come back. And that was, that was I think, one thing that played well for Colleen in this situation was that indoor track and the fact that it's a lot harder to make passes on the indoor track. And because there's more turns and fewer or fewer or shorter distance straightaways, it makes it difficult to really build up that head of steam that you need to make a big kick at the end. So I think the indoor track probably took a little bit of the the sting out of the hula hand kick, which gave Colleen Quigley the ability to stay away. And unfortunately meant Kate Grace was sort of left out of the mix after getting out of position in the race. So that was another one. The the third sort of interesting storyline from the weekend was in the U.S. men's two mile. So this is where a lot of people also have a beef, beef with USATF. But basically because of the size of these fields, they decided to contest the two mile races in two heats that weren't building to a final, but were just two distinct heats. and then the winners on time would would get one two three and so what happened was the quote-unquote slow heat had drew hunter and a couple of other athletes from 10-man elite who decided to pace drew to a fast result in that quote-unquote slow heat earlier in the night and so drew ended up with an 825 in his slow heat and when the faster heat came about, they had to beat that time in order to win the race. And ultimately, they couldn't do it. They went out slow. They were looking around. Nobody was willing to take the pace. And ultimately, Eric Avila ended up winning in 8.32 in the second heat. But Drew got the overall win in his first U.S. championships because he ran 8.25 in the in the quote-unquote slower heat so you had a little bit of an anticlimactic finish because your fastest racer wasn't actually in the mix for the quote-unquote fast heat and he was actually instead watching on the sideline as that second heat went out really slowly 
and ultimately cost all of those guys a chance at a national title. So kind of interesting, kind of silly as well. It seems to me that USATF could have found a way to have either all the athletes in one heat or potentially to have the heats build to a final that would have made this more interesting. You could have contested a, a prelim on Friday evening and then had these athletes come back for the final on Sunday to get the fastest runners all in the same heat. And so that that's that's a little bit of my beef with USADF here. It just seems like in spite of, well, I shouldn't even say in spite of, because they just simply aren't trying to actually promote the sport or to create the drama that you would want to see in these meets with the fastest athletes racing head to head. We have these weird results happening and ultimately drew wins from the slow heat, which happened about three hours before the fast heat. And poor Eric Avila thought he had won it before he realized the time was too slow, but kudos to drew for the, for the, for the first national for his first national title there and kudos to his teammates from 10 man elite who realized their opportunity and seized it by by trying to set a fast pace for drew in that first heat the last thing to mention here would be donovan brazier ended up with a world record in the 600 meter for the men's he ran it in 113.77 to get the world record, beating Sam Ellison, who ran a 115. So Brazier did it from the front and did it soundly to get that, get that victory and the world record. Obviously, the 600-meter distance is not often competed, so that record is a little bit, quote-unquote, soft. But still, it's fast and bodes well for Donovan Brazier as he heads toward, towards outdoors with a head of steam, now training with the Nike Oregon Project. And I think getting the most rigorous training he's had to date, so he is definitely going to be the favorite amongst the U.S. men going into the 800 meters for outdoors and trying to make that world team coming up this summer so congrats to donovan on that world record and it'll be interesting to see how he handles outdoor season as it comes so there you go quick recap on u.s indoors tried to hit the highlights and of course you can again if you want to go check out those races again you can watch the replays on your nbc sports gold subscription with that we're going to bring james on the show Welcome, James Dodds, back to the show. James, good to see you as always. You too. Glad to be back. Thanks. You know, after you recorded your last episode with me, or at least the last episode you did with me, 107, on staying healthy in 2019, I got good feedback. They're like, man, we love James. Bring James (laughs) on more. And so this is part of that mission, to get James on more. And... We also got a question about one of the things we talked about on that show that I wanted to now answer with you before we jump into our topic today, which is going to be talking about workouts and workout management. But before we get there, we'll we'll do a little redux on our prior episode, episode 107. And this email question comes from Josh, who is a Spanish teacher in 
I believe, Maryland, based on his email signature. And so Josh says, recently I listened to the 2019 Tips for Health. STFD is great. As a coach, I preach this, and as a runner, I try to follow it. But can you help me think through this a bit more, maybe on the podcast or in email? I'm on board, but I'm trying to process. If the easy days are easy, when do you actually improve and get faster? On the hard days? Question mark. Or by consistently showing up on the easy days? Question mark. Regarding progress, if I'm taking it easy five days a week, should I be hammering my midweek speed work and giving myself permission to turn off the speed limit on long run days? Question mark. I appreciate you and the time you take to share your podcast with us. So there's layers to that question, but I'm going to throw it to you to start with his very first question, which is if the easy days are easy, when do you actually improve and get faster? Um, so this one is just based in science, but um, you, ac- you actually get better during recovery. Um, so that's like physiology 101, um, you know, whether it's the weight room or even running. Um, when we're doing workouts, we're actually stressing the body. We're tearing muscle up. We're, we're actually beating our bodies down. And so uh, while on one hand, yes, that's what makes us stronger, it's not until we heal um, or recover from that actual workout, that beat down, um, that we actually become better. So you actually heal. It's a mix of both with the easy days and the hard days, yes, but um, I'd even say when you're sleeping. And then the idea behind the easy days, running really slow, is not only is it just uh, volume for your legs, which is increasing aerobic endurance, but it's, it's new blood. Um, I don't know if I said this on the last podcast, but one of my old coaches would always, uh, when I'd be super sore, this was in, uh, when I was doing CrossFit, he would always say, uh, I don't care how sore you are, you got to move. You got to get in here and move and get that new blood. And he was <laughs> always talking about new blood because it comes with, you know, all those nutrients um, that are going to help, you know, clean out the junk, bring in the good stuff and let you heal. On my last episode, which recorded today as well, Marilyn called it motion is lotion. <laughs> I like that like a lot I better. I hadn't heard that phrase. I'm like, motion is lotion, getting in the blood to kind of heal things, you know, and, and uh, as I have said, movement equals blood flow equals healing. But I like this motion is lotion concept. But yeah, I mean, I agree. You're, you're getting faster mostly on those easy days. I mean, that's the counterintuitive part. You know, people want to think that you have to run fast to get fast. But what happens on those easy days is not only are you recovering and consolidating the fitness gains you may have made on the faster days, but you're also building aerobic capacity, that foundational aerobic development that's so important to getting faster from taking your little lawnmower engine to becoming that V8. All that happens mostly on the easy days done consistently over time at easy paces. I like to tell my runners, you got to go slow to go fast later. And so Josh, that's precisely where you're getting faster is on those easy days as counterintuitive as that may seem. And I've used this analogy before. I maybe even used it in that episode. But if you think about weightlifting, not just what you talked about, the stress rest cycle being important, but if you think about what you do with weightlifting, if I'm trying to improve my max bench press, I don't go max every day. Right. I show up, I do more reps, lower weight in order to, when I come back to test my max periodically, I'm stronger. That's the way it works. And, and running is the same way. Most of the time you got to do lower intensity, i.e. lower weight, more volume, i.e. easy miles, 
most of the time so that when you come back to race or to do workouts, you get more out of it. Same principles apply. So that was the, the, the sort of first part of his question. And then he asked the second part, which is if I'm taking it easy five days a week, should I be hammering my midweek speed work and giving myself permission to turn off the speed limit on long run days? So I'm scared of the um, two extreme words in there. And so the, the word hammer scares me a little. Um, and then turn off um, scares me a little. But if, but if I like um, think about the nature of the question, I, I do tell folks, especially if they're only doing one quality a week, uh, that is their time to throw down. Um, so back to the word hammer, I guess they, they can't hammer it out. But, but still within a given context, um, because I don't want uh, someone to overdo it um, really exhaust themselves, get to where they're overstriding, losing good form at the end of a workout because they're, they're embracing that idea of like, Hey, it's my Wednesday night quality. So I can just hammer it out. Uh, if you go, there is such a thing as going too hard. Um, it's rare that except on race day, you get to truly run 100% like unbridled that prefontaine style, like, you know, running, uh, we love him for, for that spirit that he presented. Um, but there are, there are a lot of reasons why coach, I guess we're going to get into this even today, but you know, we prescribe workouts at a given time. So staying within a window. Um, but yeah, if you want to push yourself a little more, um, then, then go for it. Definitely. And then on the long runs too, uh, you should have, uh, long runs throughout a season. There should be a mix where there are some qualities mixed in. We do a great job of this here at Rogue. And so that's taken care of me, even as a coach, it's written into the macro and, and I don't deviate really from what Rogue's putting down, but on those long runs, yes, you can somewhat turn off. Um, you're still running. You still want to get up on your toes. You want to be in a rhythm. Um, but whether that's 45 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, up to two minutes slower per mile than your race pace. Yeah, you have a pretty big open window in there. Um, but I would understand if someone like yourself who can run 240 or so in the marathon, slowing down to run with me at 10-minute miles, may feel a little <laughs> too slow for you as well. Um, but yeah, you can you can relax on those long runs and then have very specific key long run workouts. Yeah, so... Good thoughts there. I would add a couple points. One is that I, I definitely don't like the word hammer midweek speed work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are There is a time to work hard, but I would say that all speed work should have a purpose. And some of those days is about suffering and going to your limit and your edge. And that has a purpose depending on the phase of your training. But there are also days, and we'll talk about examples of this in our main content, where it shouldn't be about quote unquote hammering or pushing the edge or even pressing till you hurt. It should be about actually control mm -hmm. and hitting a certain pace. And instead of pressing past that pace, trying to make that pace feel as smooth and efficient as possible. I mean, we'll do some repeats at either half marathon pace or maybe even marathon pace and workouts on a week during weekdays. And oftentimes when those paces are included in workouts, quality workouts, it's not about, hammering or suffering it's about making those given workout paces feel as smooth and efficient as you can so it's actually about control on those days and not finding that edge so to me that's part of the answer here josh is that there's still more nuance than even you're thinking about but yes those speed work days are the days you can go faster 
And then for long runs, as you said, it's a mix. Some days should be easy, just like you know, just like another easy run during the the week. The general rule of thumb I like to use on an easy long run is that you should be going about a minute slower than your marathon pace mm-hmm. for the long run, or perhaps a little bit slower. Can you go slow? Can you go too slow? Technically, yes, but practically most people can't. And then you mix in those those long runs with pace work every three to four weeks or so during a season in order to get race specific training in during the context of the long run. And for us that manifests in a lot of ways. We talked about that during our, what does the race require podcast series last year where you might be doing marathon goal pace segments within a long run. You know, this weekend we've got a long run workout for our groups that are doing spring marathons where they they might be doing 20 miles and they're doing three times three miles at marathon pace inside that long run with the rest of it at easy paces. And so those types of examples can come every three to four weeks, but you can't do that every week. Otherwise you'll beat yourself up and not be able to actually get the most out of some of those other workouts. So there you go, Josh. Hopefully that helps answer your question. And we'll get back to some of these principles in a way on our main topic, which is we're here to talk about workout management and we've kind of got three chapters to this discussion that we're going to work through. The first one is workout purpose and progression, which is sort of how can you understand the purpose of workouts and how subtle changes in maybe how the workout is constructed can can change the purpose of that workout. You know, two workouts that might look the same on paper could actually be achieving two very different purposes with just simple, subtle changes on pace or recovery. So we're going to talk a little bit about that to hopefully help you guys understand a little bit more about the science of constructing workouts. And so that's chapter one, chapter two of this discussion. We're going to talk about workout routines, you know, and how you can create a routine that helps you get the most out of your workouts. And then finally, we want to talk about workout management and get into some of the nuances of what happens in the middle of workouts when things might get hard or tough, or if you're having a bad day, how do you adjust or react? And how do you know when to quit a workout versus keep pressing through and try to salvage what you can? So we're going to get to some of those nuanced questions because we know a lot of you are out there training on your own and maybe listen to people like James and I, but you need somebody to to give you some, some counsel on this type of stuff because The more you know, the more you can be a better manager of your own training, even if you do have a coach. So we'll talk through all of this today. We're going to start with workout purpose and how kind of, and I guess you could call it maybe workout construction. And I want to start here, James, by talking a little bit about what you just talked to me about before we came on, which is sort of Jack Daniels principles on the variables within a workout and and how those can be modified to get different things out of it. So start there foundationally, and then we can talk about some examples. Yeah. Well, when we were discussing Jack Daniels, the first thing that came to mind, and I'll give some context to the listeners. um, But I remember being a new coach and even a new athlete. And when I first got into the programs and trying to understand why they why and how they came together, um, I would literally look at the rogue workouts and see the marshes or see the warhurst. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is a specific workout for a specific time that does this magic inside me and it changes me. And if I don't do it exactly the way it's written down, um, or that's not included in every program, maybe that's our secret sauce. Like I, I almost like thought that it was this one thing that couldn't be changed. And then 
I read Jack Daniel's book, and he was the first to put it in terms of frequency, volume, and intensity, thinking frequency meaning how often you run. Are you running um, you know, three times a week, four times a week, five times a week, et cetera? Uh, the volume, so your overall mileage, like how long are those specific runs? And then intensity, um, you know, how fast you're running um, or the pace and the effort that you're putting in there. And then, you know, I did a personal training certification course through the Gray Institute, and the way they talked about it was observational essentials. So they would describe these 10 or 12 different observational uh, essentials, like the direction you're moving, the plane in which you're moving, um, the environment you're in, the weight, the the duration, et cetera. And that made me realize, like, within a given workout, there's a lot of different de- details. There's frequency, volume, intensity, which is looking at really your week. Um, but then there's also specifics like, all right, if, if you, a coach, give me a workout, I want you to do four by 800 with two minute recoveries. Um, there's a lot of things we could switch to advance that workout. We could extend the recoveries. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry, we could shorten the recoveries. So if week one, you did four by 800 with two minute recoveries week two, it could be four by 800 with one minute recoveries. That's already a harder workout and it doesn't seem like much of a change. Or you could turn that recovery from standstill into, uh, a moving recovery. So you're actually floating for two minutes during those hard 800s. Um, there's also the distance itself. So if you're doing 800s, those could advance to 1,200 meter repeats, or you look at the whole volume of it. So four times 800 is 3,200 meters. So if I want to take you to 3,600 meters, um, the the very next week I could do that in a few different ways. You know, I could bring it up with a couple mile, re- I mean two mile repeats, and then 400 at a faster pace. But there's a lot of different levers that you can pull within any given one given workout, and I could continue to explain. But checking in to see pace, if I'm pace on track would be here. Another, or, pace would be another example. You know, you could take the pace down or change the pace in those repeats. You know, let's let's go from doing 800s at 10k down to 800s at 5k, or or you could also change the terrain. You know, you could do an 800. You could do 800 meter repeats at the track versus on a hilly road loop, which might give you a different stimulus. So there's a lot of different variables at play. But I think the thing to know, or a couple points I guess I want to stress through this discussion is, one, there's no such thing as a perfect, (laughs) perfect workout. Yeah. Not only within a cycle, but also just, in general, you know, there's, there's just no such thing. I mean, we're all trying to get a certain stimulus and yes, you might be trying to fit a certain purpose given the phase of your training, but, but, you know, I could take a given day, a given macro and I could sub probably, you know, just with what I know, 10 workouts on a given day for a purpose that I'm trying to achieve. And they might all look a little bit differently or be set up a little bit differently but could actually get the same ultimate outcome, which forces you as a coach to one, not feel so good about yourself because you're like, oh, well, I don't have actually a secret sauce. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different sauces out there that will work and make this burger taste good. Yeah. But, but also as an athlete, I think it takes some of the pressure off because it's like, okay, well, since per- perfection there's since there's no such thing as perfection and if i don't execute a workout perfectly for whatever reason you know pace slides a little bit you know i have to go a little longer on recovery here or there to make it work it's okay you know we try to think that every little thing 
matters. <laughs> but ultimately what matters most is the work broadly, right? Yeah. And so that's one point. And I think the second point is understanding the purpose of the workout and what matters in a workout is really important. And using the variables that you described and just the example you described, I mean, sometimes the pace is going to be most important and the recovery will be less important so that you might in those moments ask your coach like, Hey, you know, is it more important that I nail all the paces or is it more important that I nail the recovery? Because both things might get you a different outcome for that workout. And if your purpose is, for example, to, to work on just speed in a given workout, maybe the pace is more important and the recovery is less important. If the purpose is not that it is actually to build aerobic strength or endurance, then maybe the pace is less important and the recovery is more important that you sort of get back to work quickly so that you can build that endurance or ability to hold those paces. So as an athlete, I think it's also important when you see a workout to sort of ask yourself, why am I doing this? And therefore then what are the variables in that workout that matter? So that's another point I would make. And then I can let you respond to any of that. Uh, yeah, a couple of responses came to mind. I know like one great example of you mentioned the the purpose may be different. I'm thinking of tonight's uh, workout for, for my athletes that are running Austin. Um, my week of workout that I go to almost always, the tapers, the least scientific uh, phase of the entire training cycle, it's the most personal. So as a coach, I always stick with a little bit of a formula and I say, you know, if you're going to be in this for years, then play with what works well for you. But otherwise, week of, I'm going to have them do three by a mile at their race pace. So if they're half marathoners, I'm going to have them do three by a mile at half marathon. If they're marathoners, they technically get an easier workout tonight because they're going slower, but same workout, three by one mile at your marathon goal pace. And they can recover as long as they freaking want tonight because the only purpose of that workout in my mind is you're just practicing the rhythm of the run. I just want, I just want that pace to be sticky because nothing they do, they, they can injure themselves tonight. Uh, the race is on Sunday. So the Wednesday before a Sunday race, you can definitely like break your race in that window, but you can't make it. There's, there's no, uh, physiological benefit really that you're going to get. So I land on, Hey, take as much recovery as you want. I really don't care. Just practice that rhythm for three separate miles tonight, and then we'll call it a day. Yep. It's interesting that you say that. One, because it just shows that that's an example of doing mile repeats in a very specific way. You know, most of the time we think about doing mile repeats where you're suffering, you're going fast. Mm -hmm. But in that case, it's just really for what I call a sanity workout. You know, it's keeping the legs sharp and the mind from from freaking out basically is what you're trying to do with that workout tonight. Uh, but it's funny because we all have our favorites. I think of sort of race week, race week workouts. I had people doing a race week workout obviously as well, because I've got runners doing the Austin half and full this weekend too. And my race week workout actually looks very different than what I prefer. Sometimes I'll use a race pace workout, like what you described. Usually if I do it, it's more in the form of a fart, like instead of a distance focused one, but I actually prefer a workout where they're not running race space because I don't want them to freak out if they, if it's hard. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of times in the taper, especially that last week, because I've done it so many times, I don't feel good at race pace for whatever reason because my body's adjusting and getting ready for that big day. And so as many times as I've done race week workouts at race pace, probably 75% of them, it hasn't felt as easy as I feel like it should, which mm -hmm. freaks me out. 
So instead, I like to give my runners 400 meter repeats at slow paces with plenty of recovery. So my, my group did 10 times 400 at, with the first four at, at half marathon pace. Mm-hmm. So 400 meters at half marathon pace, super easy. The next four at 10K pace, still pretty easy. The last two at 5K pace, if they feel like it's there. Otherwise, they can you know, do whatever pace feels comfortable at that point. With plenty of rest, 16 to 90 seconds is what I usually tell them. But of course, if they want more than that, they can take it. And, and as long as they don't go crazy, they shouldn't need it. Yeah. So that's what I like them to do because it's just, you know, it's just enough to get the legs kind of moving without them being able to linger on the fact that, gosh, this feels too hard. Yeah. You know? I, I'm grinning because that, that's definitely a psychological angle there. Um, I had a high school high school coach. I played golf. So doesn't relate to running in any way except the psychological component. Um, and I used to want to make 10 straight three, three foot putts before any tournament. And he said I was never allowed to do three foot putts before a tournament again. He wanted me to do, you know, 11, 12 foot putts and just get them close because the psychological damage <laughs> that would occur if I couldn't make 10 before that tournament started, <laughs> I'd miss every three putt that day. Um, but nice. similar to what you're saying, yeah, you, nice. you know, you give them that pace and they, they feel like it's hard, then they'll be afraid, afraid to get into it on race day. So let's talk about some examples. And I'm going to use an example that I got from uh, the book Running with the Buffaloes. I interviewed Adam Goucher this week that episode will actually go up next week when this one posts and interestingly in that book it talks about through through their season and in that book it basically chronicles adam goucher's pursuit in 1998 of the ncaa cross-country title follows the team through that season getting ready for that race and it goes into a lot of details about what Mark Wetmore, their coach, prescribed throughout the season. And I don't remember off the top of my head the exact number of times they did mile repeats that season, but they did it at least three times, maybe even four, building up to their race. And yet, every time they did it, it looked a little bit different, depending on the period and phase that they were in. And Mark Wetmore is a guy who really periodizes his coaching. We talk about that in my conversation with Adam. And early in the cycle, they would do mile repeats at what would be closer to an aerobic threshold pace, so slightly faster than half marathon pace for for those that are kind of wanting to know what that means. They're doing mile repeats about half marathon pace, so similar workout to what your group is doing tonight with a little bit shorter rest for them. It was basically just about starting to build aerobic strength and endurance early in the season, also not, you know, when they're early season, putting them on edge too much, which could risk injury. And then as the season progressed, they actually got faster with those mile repeats. So down to what you would consider more of anaerobic threshold or close to anaerobic threshold and with a little bit longer rest so that they were really working the, the speed, the faster end, kind of putting the finishing touches on on their peak, so to speak, preparing for that race. And it was just interesting to see that evolution. Same thing, mile repeats, but just adjustments in pace and recovery duration, achieving different purposes throughout the season. And if you just saw five by mile or six by mile on the workout sheet, you wouldn't understand that, those nuances. It was also interesting to to hear Wetmore talk about 
those workouts and gave little descriptions as he was talking to the athletes about it. And, and you, know, you could tell he was emphasizing, you know, things like today's a day to suffer, <laughs> you know, you know, later in the season and early in the season, today's a day not to suffer and, and maybe even cut it short or, or, you know, talk to me if something's going wrong. Cause we had, we can, we can change some variables. So it, it also became more precise later in the season. So anyway, that's just one example, but you can you know, use it. I really think about volume, pace, and recovery duration. Uh, volume being the total length of the workout or the number of repeats you're doing, the pace, the pace you're running, and then the, the recovery duration as the three primary variables you're playing with. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, workout terrain or, or venue is also kind of a fourth variable that you can mix in. But between those three variables, you can change the purpose. And depending on the time and the season and what you're trying to accomplish, get different things out of it. What's another example? You know, um, well, that's a, that was a good question. Um, my brain started going in another direction, as you said. What's well, go in the example, other direction. But, um, what'd you, what'd you, where'd I, you want to go well, with Well, yeah, as you were talking, um, uh, you said the word specific um, or specificity. And so it reminded me of, yeah, the term specificity of training. And so um, when I was you know, new to writing out macros, um, I, I first like took the linear approach and also, you know, took the thought of like a command performance. You start with race day, you work backwards to determine like, um, you know, what a workout's going to be in the final stages. Um, but ultimately if someone's preparing to run 26.2 miles or 13.1 or even a 10 K at a specific pace, then towards that end, towards the end of that season, you wanted to get into more race specific type workouts, um, workouts that would, um, feel or emulate the actual race day experience itself in some form or fashion. Uh, so I know that if I have, um, you know, marathoners towards the end of a season, um, that I'm not going to have them doing quarter mile repeats at their 5k down to one mile pace. Um, just because that's, that's a speed workout. That's a turnover workout. There may be a need for speed in the end. Um, but it's not, it's not going to translate well to the actual race itself. So you know, you brought up that term specificity and it just triggered that thought of race specific training. And as I worked backwards through a season, first I started with Lydiard with like, you got the, you work backwards, you have the three weeks of taper, you have the four to six weeks of speed training. He would say like, you can't really do speed training until you're strong enough. So it was like strength work before that. And so I would mix in like threshold workouts and hill repeats because in my mind that would determine strength and then prior to that it was all base and base could be 10 weeks or it could be two years it didn't really matter and I liked operating that way because it was a formula for me um but then you know hanging out with John Shrupp and talking to to him in uh the early days of coaching and 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 how he thought about um writing out macros he moved into basically second half of season is preparing you for the race and first half of the season is simply preparing you for the second half of the season. Uh, so it's like if I knew that four weeks prior to a race day experience, an athlete needs to be able to run. I may be getting into the second chapter here. You're more You're into okay. specific workouts, but um, I would just know like, all right, if eventually I want these guys like their their key workouts going to be, I don't know, it's going to be a long run workout. It's going to be. 20 miles, um, with two by four miles at marathon pace and, uh, recoveries in there. And then two miles at half marathon pace, uh, within that given day. Um, I knew that I would want to break that up and give them little taste of that throughout the season. 
So if you can't even run four miles at half marathon goal pace, well, then earlier in the season, the first half, I was going to give them two by two miles at half marathon goal pace and make sure they could swallow that first, let their body recover, get better before they moved into workouts, including that four miles at X pace. Yeah. You're getting into the idea of progressing, advancing these workouts so that you can prepare to do the work. Yeah. Later. Steve used to say, I've got to get you fit enough to train. Mm. <laughs> and basically, you got to be fit enough to do, you got to build your fitness so that you can do the 10 week workout by preparing for that the first 10 weeks. Yeah. Right. The other thing, or the overarching point though here that I want to get to is that I, I think there's a tendency for people who maybe aren't coached or who, are looking at maybe a macro from somebody else or they see a workout that maybe a professional athlete posts on their on their schedule they look at that and they think oh that's a cool workout and they just kind of throw it in like i'm gonna do that next week and it doesn't really work that way you know even though maybe i could substitute 10 workouts on a given day for a given purpose in a macro that i write all of those workouts sort of being oriented the same way. That doesn't mean that I can just pull a workout from anywhere and plug it in <laughs> next week. So to me, it reinforces this point that as an athlete, you need to know why you're doing what you're doing in the context of that week, as well as in the context of your schedule, as well as really over time, the context of how you've been built over the last several years, because what you might do now could be more advanced than what you might do Three years ago, going back to running with the Buffaloes, Mark Wetmore would have little groups based on experience and ability. And, it was, you know, the, 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 the newbies, the freshmen, would do fewer repeats at slower paces versus the veterans and the more experienced athletes like Adam, who'd been in the program for several years, would do more at faster paces because they could handle it. And so you also have to think about that context. Like, I can't just take a workout from somebody else and just throw in and jump right into it. I got to prepare and build for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if 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 someone were to bite off too much early on, they look at the workout, they're like, "Well, you know, this celebrity runner did it, so I need to be able to do that." They could injure themselves, which takes them out of the game. And one of my number one rules as a coach is when in doubt, lean conservative. I think I got that from Bowerman's book, but doesn't matter. I think every coach out there has said it at least once, but when in doubt, lean conservative, because the number one reason why people don't hit their goals is they don't even make it to the race line. They don't make yep. it to the starting line. So I never want an athlete. I want to, I want to stress an athlete's body as much as we have to, to get them ready for their race and no more. Um, there's no, there's no, uh, glory in just conquering a workout. You know, I want to get them ready for race day. And so never want to, um, injure them along the way. But then the reverse is true. Like you mentioned, someone might've done a workout three years ago. Um, Sure, even though you can execute it and it feels good and that was your favorite workout leading up to a race, uh, it may not actually provide much of a stimulus anymore. You may just be locked and loaded on that and so you're not actually getting any benefit because uh, it just, yeah, doesn't provide yeah. that stimulus. It's too little at that point. So that's chapter one. Chapter two of this discussion, I want to talk about workout routine because I think this is also important for people to establish a routine around their workouts, which doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to play out the same way. But I do think it's important to put your, put your game face on, so to speak, to have 
to limit the number of variables you're managing on a given day. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And some of the stuff I think we're going to talk about is a little bit, maybe, maybe may sound silly, but isn't really. It's sort of like this idea that if you're going to spend a bunch of energy running mile repeats at X pace, I should minimize the thought process and the energy that I'm spending to get to that first repeat, right? So that I can get the most out of the actual stimuli or stimulus for that given day. And so what does that mean? And, I, and we can kind of talk about it in phases. It's like workout prep. And to me, this, this goes to simple things like, or it can be as simple as preparing the same way every, the day, the night before and the morning of a big quality workout. You know, for me, I work out in the mornings. And now, does that mean that every time I have a Tuesday morning workout, I'm going to go to bed early on Monday, eat the same thing, lay out my workout, close the night before? No. But what it does mean is that I do tend to look at the macro in the season and circle the big ones, the ones I know are important or that I know are going to be hard or challenging for me. And in those situations, I do start to put my game face on maybe the night before. You know, eat a dinner that I know is going to sit well with me. Go to bed for me a little bit earlier than I normally would. Maybe get my gear out. I don't usually do that before a 5.30 a.m. workout, but I might in front of a big workout get my gear out so that I don't have to think about that when I wake up. Make sure my alarm is set. When I wake up, do the same things, follow the same routine until I show up here and go to work. So that's sort of the, the even like before I even start to run part of it. And again, I don't think you have to make it too rigorous or be too much a slave to routine. But on those big days, why not minimize variables as best you can? Yeah. You forgot one very important variable in your okay. routine, though, Chris. What's that? Set the coffee pot. <laughs> well, I don't drink coffee, James. <laughs> ah, there you go. I forget but that. Yeah, you and but Brian that, Ward. I don't know how you yeah, two move through life. I don't drink coffee, but yeah, that would be the thing. And I do sometimes on winter mornings, I do drink hot tea when I know it's going to be cold because it warms me up from the inside and I feel like makes it easier for me to step out that door when it's time to go. And so I will, if that's, you know, if that's the case, if it's going to be cold, then I will make sure and I have a Keurig, I will make sure that the Keurig tank, the reservoir is full of water so that when I (laughs) pop it on in the morning, I don't have to mess with that. Yeah. And for the 98% of us who actually drink coffee. Yes. Set the coffee Add that to the routine. Um, No, uh, jokes aside, two two things had come to mind. One was the, um, one one is what you hit on, and I'm going to come back to that second, but... um, the, the first thing that came to mind was the, the ritualistic component of it. I think baseball players and even golfers, like, I have, I have a routine before I, you know, even when I'm hitting practice balls, uh, I go through the same uh, routine every, every single time I step up to the ball. And when I rush through them, uh, time on the range doesn't go well. Um, but stepping back, looking where I'm going to hit, et cetera. Like, so there's that ritualistic component. There, there's, a, there's obviously something to priming the brain, like, when you go through this ritual, um, once you've gone through that ritual, that routine, not only for practical reasons that you listed out, but um, the brain settling into like, oh, 
I know I'm about to do something big. Um, that works. And then you also m- use the word minimize, and it made me think of race day. We'll we'll talk about this a lot on um, like race preparation preparation speeches, but you know when that anxiety and everything sets in um, on actual race day itself, knowing your routine is huge because it's something else that you can control. So you're like, you know, hell or high water or whatever happens on race day, whether I'm uh, I'm stressed, I'm tired, I slept the night before, you know, you know exactly what you're wearing, um, what you're eating. You have this whole routine, um, but you can't just wait until race day to do it. Um, you start practicing it now. It, it It's supposed to be throughout your season, not only for those big key workouts sake, but also so that it actually has the, the, uh, wanted impact on race day that you're hoping for. You can't just wait till the actual day. Yeah. Your uniform. Yeah. I was on, I just talked to Kara Goucher this week. I was reading her book strong, which we just talked about a few episodes ago. She talks about this concept of enclosed cognition. Where for races, you know, she puts on a uniform that makes, it's like a, it's almost like armor, so to speak, for a warrior going into battle. It's like you're putting on your uniform. It's a signal to your brain that it's going to include things like your shoes, your, your singlet might be a special piece of jewelry you wear, whatever it may be. Adam Goucher running with the Buffaloes, he would wear a necklace with these beads on it that basically represented skulls or 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 athletes that he had beaten in races oh wow you know prior in prior (laughs) races and and so that's something he wore only on race day but this idea you're putting on a uniform uh armor so to speak this time it's business time it's time to go it's game time and i think that applies in workouts too just like you mentioned for races and there will certainly be key workouts during the cycle, especially long run workouts that I'll do. And I'm wearing my race kit because it's not only an opportunity to test it out and make sure it works for me and I don't have chafing in weird areas, but also it's that recognition that, okay, it's game time. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I used to have a singlet, this, this black New Balance singlet, and I would save it for the big workouts in race day. Um, the first time I trained with Team Rogue a few years back when Jeff Knight was here. Yeah. Um, and then you did touch on shoes, but uh, to take it a little further with that, I remember when uh, early days of Rogue, Darren Brown was still here, and he had talked me into getting a, a specific special pair of shoes for both track workouts and faster races. And when I say faster, I'm thinking like 10K or 5K races. Um, and I took it as far as... Um, jogging over to the track with those uh racing flats i'd I'd wear my actual um you know normal trainers just like my my bigger softer shoes i'd jog over to the track holding my racing flats and then when i was on the track i'd slip them on um and of course i did run my fastest 10k ever here so (laughs) can't give all the credit to that but it it was definitely something for me that um i latched onto and worked so different shoes yeah so that's sort of prep, and obviously that would also include if you're going to eat something that morning of, all those different variables, have coffee, like you said. And then the workout itself, like once you actually step out the door, I think you want to establish routine there, which would include how long you do your warm-up at obviously easy paces being important for the warm-up, whether or not you do drills or some basic strides before you actually jump into the workout itself. You know, the group I coach on Wednesday mornings, 
We do our warm-up. We do the same set of drills every single Wednesday before we start our workout, which both reinforces good form but also serves as a dynamic warm-up tool so that they're ready to go and, and the lights are on, so to speak, with their, their muscles, tendons, and, and, and nerves that, so that they're ready. So there's that pre-workout warm-up and potentially drills you want to find in your routine. You know, then the workout itself, you know, I think having for key workouts, maybe certain venues you go to that might be associated with certain workouts that will help you execute those workouts. I think that becomes important. It might be the track. It might not be. For Team Rogue, we have certain workouts that we do at certain venues, road loops or road intervals. And that creates, I think, both a, a routine around, if I go to this place, this is what I'm doing but also a familiarity with the terrain or course that you're on so that it makes it easier to execute the workout. And yeah, there's a time and place to mix that up so you don't get too too comfortable, so to speak. But I do I do like that identification of a certain venue with a certain type of workout. And, you know, and then within the workout itself, we got to talk about, you know, recovery and knowing that if I have 90 seconds rest, what does that mean? Is that jogging? Is that walking? Is it standing? Do I have water there? Do I not? Those variables come into play as well. And that's something you should be interacting with your coach on. If you have a coach and if you don't, you know, you should understand for a given workout what I should be doing for recovery to make sure that I'm primed and ready for that next repeat. Those are just some examples of during workout stuff. Anything come to mind there? Yeah, I'm definitely knowing the purpose and and the intention um, within that given workout. So um, I know days where I'm taking it very serious. So unless something like some kind of cramp or actual like injury pain, I can feel some kind of specific nag, um, is coming at me. Um, if I had set an intention that day that I was going to be serious about the workout and I needed to execute those paces and stay tight on my recoveries, uh, then I don't really compromise on those days. Um, again, if it's an injury thing, that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, being incredible, incredibly intentional there. Another thing had come to mind when you were talking, and I'm I'm kind of blanking on it uh, now, but maybe it'll come back. Yeah. So, and then yeah, so that's during workout, and then after the workout, what's your routine as well? I mean, we've talked about this for before on other episodes, but making sure that you cool down properly, give yourself enough time for that. Obviously, do that at easy paces, and then what's your post-workout routine look like to make sure you kickstart that recovery process? Whether it be jumping on the foam roller, maybe making sure you get a good, solid, well-balanced meal within an hour, hour and a half, two hours after the workout. Taking an ice bath on occasion, maybe after long run workouts. Whatever it may be, that recovery routine is important too. And again, it may not have scientific validity as we talked about on my Good To Go episode with Christy Eschwanden, but I do think that routine Routine creates a comfort zone for you to get in the headspace. Even if the modality has no scientific proof, it gets you in the headspace to start bringing you down from that stress. Kickstart that mental recovery process. Signify to your body, send signals to the body for it to start its healing processes so that you're ready for the next thing when it's time. Yeah, and sometimes the science can be, you know, all over the place. Sometimes the science is there. Um, and it affirms something, but it may not work 
for everybody uh, with their lifestyle. And then, and then other times, maybe the science just people haven't gone very far, gone very far with it. So, but but yet we've seen it work for a lot of people. And I know I'm being really generic right now, but there's things like eating in that 90, 90 minute window. Um, that just comes down to your lifestyle. I, I'm I'm a proponent of it. So whether the the science completely affirms that or not, I'm definitely going to eat after a big workout. Uh, and for practical reasons, I just don't want to be dizzy at my desk at 10 a.m. when I walk into the office. Yeah, I got to um, refuel. Yeah. And there's that like uh, work and reward type play there too, throwing down a big workout and then having a, a good solid breakfast. Um, it's nice. Back to science and whether it's there or not in your post-workout uh, routine. I remember when when um, stretching was debunked and everybody seemed to be talking about it. I don't know if this was six or eight years ago now, but it was like, hey, static stretching is, is gone. We only do dynamic stretching now. Um, even dynamic, we move pre-workout rather than post-workout, et cetera. Um, but I remember having a conversation with Ruth, one of the founders here, and Ruth was, was saying, honestly, I'll still have my, my athletes stretch just so I can get them to lay down. Just, just so after a workout, they actually just lay down on the ground <laughs> and let their whole central nervous system just calm down. Right. So they don't do what I'm actually guilty of doing right now. But um, when I'm done with a team row workout, I, I come in, I grab my keys, and I'm in my car, and I get straight to Taco Deli. And then I buzz around my day. I try to get into the office as soon as I can after that workout. Um, and I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. So even though my body might re- re- be recovering at my desk, my brain's still firing really hard. And, um, you know, sometimes I can be... Uh, uh, anxious little nilly come 3 p.m. But as we mentioned on that 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 last podcast, I do get plenty of sleep at night. Um, but again, back to that 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 real point. I ramble a bit, but um, just sometimes getting people to lay down and recover. Um, so again, whether the science backs the stretching or not, the stretching is there to serve another purpose as well. And so figuring out your post routine to make sure you're recovering, your body's um, calming down and relaxing is there's actually interestingly both on warm up and cool down there's a phil maffetone concept that he talks about in heart rate training which basically says that when you warm up you want your heart to go through every single heartbeat range on the way up to your workout intensity without skipping a lot of people go out too hard and they skip from you know from normal resting heart rate to close to workout heart rate right away versus easing into it and lo- letting your heart rate basically increase steadily all the way to that workout pace. And if you let it do that more gradual increase, then not only does that prepare your body holistically to do the workout in a healthy way better, but it also allows you to get more out of your workout at those higher heart rates when you get there versus short circuiting it and kind of jumping. And then he talks about the same concept in the cool down where you want to come from that high heart rate back down, hitting all those different zones as you come back to resting heart rate. And if you don't allow it to do that by short circuiting the process, either by stopping from workout to no cool down straight to laying on the ground, you're missing an element. And if you go do the cool down, but then come back and don't lay on the ground and instead jump in your car and get to the next thing, then you're missing maybe that full return to resting heart rate that allows you to get back into that recovery zone out of the stress situation, right? And so both of those concepts can apply. And I think that's a really powerful thing to think about when 
you're thinking about recovery is like bringing that heart rate back down to resting. And even if that means, as you say, laying down and stretching or laying down on the foam roller, giving yourself some time and space versus rushing to the next thing, which we like to do and have a tendency to do, that's going to be more powerful for you to kickstart recovery. Now, of course, everybody's going to listen to this and be like, James and Chris, come on. Nobody has time to do all this, all this stuff. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true or not. I know I have a lot of people that I coach and athletes that I work with side by side in, in my own running who have a lot of crazy demands in their lives, but make time at night time for this stuff. And that might mean waking up earlier. It also, in some cases might mean shortening the workout. Like I think it could be better for some people in some cases to shorten the workout. If that means giving yourself a proper cool down and recovery routine versus getting all of the workout and then short circuiting that end process. Yeah. I, two things came to mind when you brought up that rebuttal, um, which is fair. Um, I like your advice, you know, um, <laughs> there, or, or your statement, really. There's plenty of people doing it. So, uh, but two things came to mind. One, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm realizing because I'm now thinking about this through the lens of listeners who may not have something like Rogue. Um, but here we don't really have, especially in Team Rogue, we don't have a, a, a workout location that isn't more than two miles away. We always jog minimum two miles warm up, two miles cool down. So it's kind of built in for us. Now, whether the athlete is managing it um, properly, that's up to them. They could be racing back home. Um, but I guarantee you I'm not racing back. When I leave, the, when I leave a quality here, uh, I'm, I'm going Snell's pace back to Rogue, I promise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just making sure there's warm-up and cool-down. Even for macros I write for friends, um, I might say that the workout is three by a mile repeats at X pace. Um, but I'm assuming they're getting their 15 to 20 minute warm up and cool down in before that. So, um, I don't know anyone that's just going out, hammering out the three mile repeats and then being done. So that should be built into the workout. Like you said. Um, and another thing is, I think early on in this conversation, you said something about investment, um, and how much you're putting into this, but, um, you're investing a lot of time and energy into this if you're preparing for a marathon or half marathon. Um, so why not make good on that investment? If, if this is a one percenter, yeah, it's going to take you three extra minutes to lay down at Rogue just so your, your heart rate can calm down um, after you've jogged back. Um, don't, don't shave off these little nuances and ignore these one percents. Um, thinking that, uh, well, I did 85% of what I was supposed to go ahead and finish that off and make good on your investment. Cause you're putting a, putting so much time, stress and energy into this anyway. Agree with that. All right. So let's get to our last chapter here on sort of workout management and how do you manage it when it's going well or not well and what happens when things go wrong and how do you make those decisions in the workout that you might doubt later and interestingly we had recently a workout with our podcast training group that was a long run workout where we were we were having them i was having them do a graduated progression basically for our marathoners over 20 miles they were doing a graduated progression in five mile chunks starting at marathon goal pace plus one minute and working down and team rogue actually here recently did the same workout for the podcast group, we get everybody posts every week about how it went on our social wall and our final search platform now. And I was reading through those posts 
and a lot of people it didn't go well that particular workout for whatever reason and there was a lot of different reasons but one of the questions that came up out of that because there were some people that decided to cut the workout short was how do I know how do I know when I make that decision and so this is kind of the core of what I want to get to here the first point though as we walk into that though is that I want to make sure that people understand just like we said at the top perfection is not necessarily the goal now one thing I remind people is that it does matter where you are in a training cycle as to the standard of perfection you might hold yourself to. Perfection is never the goal. But when you're closer to the race, obviously a little more precision is more important than when you're further from the race. And I like to tell people that your peaking, as much as it is built into the macro, is also a decision in a way, or you can control it. And by what I mean by that is that early in a cycle you can control the fact that you're going to stay away from that edge by being a little less rigorous with pace, erring on the conservative side. When in doubt, choosing one fewer reps if you have a range of them. Making sure that you finish every workout feeling like you've got something extra at the end. Versus later when you're in the meat of it and maybe it's four weeks to go in a marathon block. No, you nail the paces. You take the recovery as prescribed. You finish the workout assuming there's no injury issues or something that might be really wrong. And that's when your precision gets more dialed in, which is a signal to your body that, okay, it's game. It's go time. It's almost go time. And so that's a way you can manage your walk towards that peak is sort of your use of precision and or holding to a more precision as, as the season progresses. So to me, point one is let go of this idea of perfection, first of all, but do recognize that how you manage your precision around workouts can affect that peaking process. The second thing I want to talk about is workouts with uh, managing that within workouts. So yes, you have across the season, but also within workouts. I like to talk to people, and this is something I learned from John Trapp, who we've already talked about, is that every workout should be a progression of some sorts, just like your races should be a progression for the most part. You want to start conservatively. You want to finish strong. I say this all the time. If you miss early, miss slow. If you get a little bit fast at the end, I'm okay with that, as long as you stay in control. So as you think about a workout, even if it's, even if the instructions are do 10k pace the whole time maybe it's eight times 800 at 10k pace fine but in your mind you should be thinking all right first one i'm gonna be a little slower than 10k pace so that i can kind of make sure that i don't make the mistake of going 5k pace and so i can you know ease into it letting my body warm into that pace and then feel it out get to that 10k pace during the workout after one or two reps and then maybe finish a little faster late Kind of treat it like a smooth progression throughout. Finishing workouts like that not only allows your, you to train your body that that's how you should execute, but it also sets the tone for ultimately what you want to do on race day, which is start a little bit conservatively and finish strong in most cases. So those are a couple of points to start this part of the discussion. Reactions, James. 
Oh, so much came to mind. I'm going to try to um, organize it somewhat. But the last point you, you mentioned about starting slow and getting faster, um, it started making me think about why athletes do that. And, 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 and I, I tend to think, I operate, that this is the general rule. There are, there are athletes here that uh, they're an exception. They don't operate this way. But a lot of people will come to it looking at it like a test. Um, and it's rooted in insecurities, and I love talking about insecurities and vulnerability. Um, I know most people don't, so they don't like to use that language. Um, but I think deep down, it's kind of rooted in insecurities. It's that fear of, like, I don't know if I can uh, deliver on my command performance. And then it works backwards from there. And so they get into this late-season workout with the 10 by, I'm trying to use the example you gave, but the 10 by 800. 8, 8 by 800 at or, 10K. Yeah, 8 by 800 at 10K. <clears throat> and even if they've not even been this thoughtful and honest with themselves, something in there is operating saying like, if I don't hit that, then I won't be able to hit my goal on race day. So essentially what they've done with their brain is they, they've made this now a test, like a pass-fail. Either... I hit the workout and I passed and therefore I have reason to believe I can actually execute on my workout or I failed it and then they're going to like berate themselves um, and carry that insecurity even further and worry. I don't, I don't know how I'm ever going to do this. And I think a way to alleviate it, alleviate that <clears throat> is to think about it the way you presented it. And another way of saying it is like, think about everything in context. It, it's not just like, today you get a pass grade because it was eight by 800 at 10k and you hit it therefore you pass but rather what's going on in the the whole picture of things like looking at even your your whole game plan so i know we were talking about within a season um but it, but even like before you even started the season uh what body of work did you lay out for yourself or what was laid out for yourself i know that if last marathon season i ran X pace on race day and I was training on, you know, 22 weeks worth of work, averaging 35 mile weeks. Um, and I hit that eight by 800 at 10 K in week 12. Great. Um, but if this year I've already started with, I'm going to do 24 weeks of work building up to this and I'm going to average 45 mile weeks. I've already advanced myself like in the whole body of work just based on volume and number of weeks I'm training. So now if I get to this one single workout uh, uh, during the season, um, maybe I didn't hit all eight. Maybe, maybe I was that guy that went out too fast, started too fast. I only got six of them in, so I'm bonking. Now I'm not feeling good about the workout. Um, and the point I'm trying to make here is think about it all within context. Yeah. And another contextual component is are, are things around you. Last Thursday, we had a workout at the track. And um, we're in Texas. So for listeners not here, <laughs> we're in Texas. We've had a string of, let's say, like we've been averaging 40 degrees um, in the past six weeks. But even though that's been our average, we'll have 36 degrees on a Tuesday and we'll have 75 degrees on a Thursday. <laughs> Last Thursday, for about three minutes I actually questioned myself as an athlete because I woke up it was 72 degrees it was humid we went to the track and I just couldn't run like I think we were supposed to do 10k pace on the track for like you know I don't know it was a 1200 yeah a 1200 you should be able to run 1200 meters at your 10k pace and my heart rate was up in my throat (laughs) 
And I literally thought I was going backwards. I started wondering, should I have not done that long trail run? Should I have not raced three and a half? Oh my gosh, maybe my formula is not working out. I really am deteriorating as a human and an athlete. And I'm not going to be, you know, that's just our anxious monkey brain going crazy. And I don't know why, but it finally hit me when I was getting water at the water cooler. I was like, James, you're 195 pounds and it's 72 degrees outside. Yeah. You're not going to be able to hit the same pace as you hit last week in 36 degree weather. So again, the bigger overarching point in context that day, the weather was different. I had to think about it in context of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And in that case, it might be, Hey, I can't do 10 K pace, but I can do 10 K effort and whatever pace that ends up being for that day. Fine. You know, still got some work in a couple other things I want to get to. Wait, before you move off that, yeah, I, I, I love that you just brought up the word effort because that's something that came to mind. Um, you know, watch for this. But during the summer when I'm talking to my athletes, even sending emails, I rarely say, here's the workout, um, six by 800 at 10K pace. I'm, I change to effort during a Texas summer. Sure. Because, you know, yeah, who, who actually hits 10K pace in a workout in the summer? If you're doing that, not That's here. not your real 10K pace. <laughs> not here. That means you're just sandbagging your 10Ks. <laughs> yeah, certainly not here. No, I'm very, those two words, effort and pace, in the workout descriptions are very, very important how and when you use either. And so, yes, agree with that. A couple of other points I want to make. One is on adjustments. You know, you talked about, hey, what if you miss? What if you mess up and you can't finish or whatever? And that question comes up a lot for me as a coach too. And a lot of times when we're, we're overseeing workouts, we can see that person and they can ask us, Hey, this happened. This is what I'm feeling. Do I quit now? Or do I, or do I finish and just modify the pace or whatever? And so a couple points on that, if things are going poorly and sometimes I say one, just don't hesitate to make proactive adjustments. And if you go out too fast in rep one, don't beat yourself up and don't do the second rep too fast. Just back up, slow down, reset, fix the problem in the moment versus then just doing the next one at 5k and the next one at 5k until you blow up. Right? So don't be afraid to adjust in real time. If you, if you can beyond that, if things go poorly and you want to quit, then I do think there's a little bit of a decision tree that you need to go through. You know, the first, question on that decision tree might be am I going to hurt myself am I in danger of injuring myself because generally if the answer is yes to that question stop you know your Achilles flares up it's getting hurt worse and worse as you go stop you know whatever injury you might chronically deal with pops up and you just it's getting worse as you go stop that's okay it's better to live to fight another day than to finish that workout and then not be able to run the next five days because your Achilles is flared. So that's maybe question one on that decision tree. Second question probably is, what's the purpose of this workout? And if the purpose of this workout is to build aerobic strength and you're not able to hit the paces or endurance and you're not able to hit the paces, those workouts generally have paces less important and it's more about grinding. And so finish it, do what you can switch over to effort. Don't worry about it. That workout last Thursday, that was an aerobic strength workout. 
It wasn't about 10K on the track. The 10K on the track was just to wear you out so that when you did the tempo mile on the road, you had to work a little bit more. Both really were effort-based. And so in that case, James, grind it out. But I don't care if you're doing half and marathon pace in the two different intervals or the paces are irrelevant. One's faster, one's slower than the other. Just grind. But if the workout is more of a speed-oriented workout and it's about being precise with paces and you're trying to hit 5K but you can't or maybe you get sloppy, in those cases, maybe it's better to stop because you're going to do more harm than good once you start to trail off. So that's where as an athlete, you got to kind of know, like, why am I here? Can I still get the purpose by continuing? If so, grind. If I can't get the purpose by continuing, time to stop. Or if I'm going to risk injury, time to stop. So those are some thoughts there. React, James. Uh, I love your decision tree. And I think, you know, within the workout, I can't add anything to make that better. I think that's a great, you know, run through that decision tree. I'll just go back to what I was saying a second ago, and that's, again, think about it um, within context. I know as a coach, I'm always trying to look at the human in front of me, not just the athlete. So other layers of context, too, are like, you know, have you slept well the past couple nights? Um, what were the last three weeks? When, when a brand new athlete comes to me, um, we said this earlier, like sometimes we can demystify like coaching and it takes a little pressure off. Um, but I'm like, where have you been and where are you going? It, it can be that simple. Um, so it's like, yeah, I want to know their last three weeks of training, what their longest run was and probably the hardest workout that they had done in the last three weeks. And I get an idea and then I know how to start just advancing them. Um, so if I'm coming into a workout, I know I haven't slept well for a couple of days. I've been stressed at work. Um, if someone's had an argument with a spouse or, um, you know, there's other layers of the human standing in front of us. I'm speaking from the coaching angle now. Um, but but the athlete should be thinking this way, too. The athlete is still they're, they're still coaching themselves. They're they're taking taking what we teach them, put it through their own filter, and they need to think about things in context, something that the coach might not see. Um, and, and, and be honest and, and fair with yourself. Like, literally, if life has been turmoil for 10 days, um, you probably want to win that workout uh, just so you can get one win. But if you've, you've had 10 bad days in a row and you're not quite executing on pace, that's all right. Like, back off a little bit and do what you can and, and just move yourself along incrementally. Yeah. And live to fight another day. That's a great point. Context is important. And then if you do have to quit or if you do fail, if you do miss your paces or whatever it may be, it's one workout in the sea of many. No one workout will make or break any race, any bit of long-term development. You showed up, you did something. You got a stimulus that will pay in some way at some point down the road. Let it go. Do it. Get what you can out of it. Live with whatever decisions you make in that workout, however it goes, and move on. No point in beating yourself up. And that's something I see sometimes where, as you say, people think of it as a test. And they're like, damn, I failed that one. That means I'm going to suck in the race on race day. And that's just simply not true. I mean, I've talked about it often on here. I like it when my, long, when my athletes have long run workouts that don't go perfectly, especially closer to the race, because that means they had to work through mm-hmm. something they had to work the physical and the mental they had to fight they had to struggle they had to deal with those demons they might jump on the shoulder and tell you, you can't and then as a result they're more prepared now to deal with the demons that come on the race day especially in a marathon versus if it goes perfectly not only can that breed overconfidence but it also means you didn't get that practice that mental s- struggle that 
physical struggle of fighting to hold a pace mm-hmm. like you will at the end of a race. So anyway, so bad workouts can actually, in some cases, be more productive for you, can provide better lessons than the ones that go perfectly. So take your lessons and move on. The last thing I want to talk about, and then you've got to go coach, James, is doing workouts by feel and not being a slave to your watch. And certainly, you know, have a Garmin, have a watch where you can split laps, know what you're doing out there so that you can track your progress. At the interval level, but I want to emphasize this point, which is that you can't be a slave to your watch during during reps especially you know if you're doing one if you're doing mile repeats look at your watch at the beginning when you hit start on the lap and at the end when you hit stop so you know what you did for that repeat don't look at it during the repeat it's not going to help you and maybe if there's a landmark somewhere that makes sense if it's on the road or if it's at the track look at it at the 800 mark just to calibrate where you are maybe but you've got to learn to feel it out I recorded earlier a podcast training podcast with Kate and she said a a comment on this, which I think is great, which is that the watch isn't running the race for you. Your legs are, your body is. So don't be a slave to it. Don't be checking in every five seconds. Don't be looking at instant pace, you know, hundred meters in, which is going to be completely off and then overcorrecting or undercorrecting or doing something funny because of what you see on that watch. Feel it out. And then collect your data at the end and then calibrate back with the effort and how it felt. But this is such an important point, especially for half marathoners and marathoners where efficiency is the game. This isn't about killing yourself at those distances. It's about being efficient, learning to run by rhythm, run by feel, control your breathing, control your heart rate actively during those races. And you learn that when you're just listening to the sensory data your body is telling you and you're not looking at your Garmin. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, there's no better way to train it. I'm actually using a pedometer right now instead of, um, my actual Garmin. I've just like, I'll see the steps. Um, there one caveat to that. I have the most reliable training partner on (laughs) earth. I train with Martha Newton and she's Martha the metronome. Yeah. She is dialed in. So, (laughs) um, that's kind of cheating, but it does allow for me to, um, I, I actually don't know our paces until later in that day. I'll just ask, Hey, if it was, what I thought to be a sexy workout, I'll text her and say, by the way, what pace did what we run? Do? I kind of want to know because I'm feeling really good about myself. Um, but not only does that relieve a lot of anxiety, but yeah, it's teaching awareness. Um, had a conversation with Mallory Brooks uh, either last week or the week before, and she said it's just funny how uh, few runners are actually aware of their body or in tune with their body. It's just, it's almost like a foreign language. We, we'd rather just look at the watch and, and say, you're, you're in charge and you tell me. Um, but when, you're, when are you going to ever learn that language um, if you don't start practicing it now and trying to, so even just maybe in some workouts, flipping the garment upside down and then flipping it back over when you're done. And you mentioned this for half marathoners and marathoners, but that's huge for, um, if you don't learn that language, that's how you can be, um, really surprised on race day in a bad way. I think when I was early to running marathons, um, I thought I was doing pretty great at mile seven running according to pace. My body felt great. Um, but I had no clue if what I was feeling at that point, I wasn't dialed into this language of the body, so to speak. Um, so yeah, when I, when it all came apart at 18 or 22, I would just be crazy surprised. Whereas a couple of weeks ago when I did that trail run, um, 
based on just an awareness of my own body, running with a pedometer, have no idea my pace. Um, few signals went off uh, within me, and I was like, okay, I'm a little warmer than I want to be, and I'm only about an hour in, and this is going to be a five-hour effort. And I knew how to dial it back and save that long-run day, that that trail marathon, because I, I'm a little more in tune. I don't want to say I'm perfect at it, but I'm a little more in tune with my body. Um, so, yeah, if they don't start embracing it. And you listened. Yeah. I think the the team element you mentioned, if you have workout partners, is also powerful. I like to have people in the groups and within the subgroups within my team rotate pacing duty. So people are alternating at the front, setting that pace, and then everybody else can take a turn just kind of sitting back, letting letting that person roll and not and turning their brain off and just thinking about how it feels in their own body versus, and then sometimes on, on some of the reps taking the lead and then having to figure that out themselves. And in those cases, I'll encourage somebody to lead and somebody else to call the splits if you have them so that that front person doesn't have to look at their watch. They're just getting a little bit of input, you know, maybe at the halfway point of an interval to adjust from. No, no wonder so many people are in your group. I want to join your group now. <laughs> right? <laughs> the magic of the morning show. Leaning on the team. So, so there you go. So those are some points. Hopefully that helped both provide some context for people on workout purpose and construction, but also some real practical tips on how to execute and get the most out of their training. As always, James, it's fun to, to get you on here, and we'll have to do it more. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Love it. Well, we'll talk to you again soon, James. You and I need to brainstorm a list of topics we can cover together. Sounds good. All right, man. With that, as the end of the conversation with James on workout management, we will wrap this episode. This has been episode 115 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.